Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our Bible study series examines a specific part of God's Word of Truth. We pray that through this study your faith will be built up and you will grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word through what you hear. Welcome back to Burden and Blessing and our Bible study series. My name is Nathaniel Mayhew, and joining me today is Pastor Mark Tiefel to continue our series on the book of Genesis. Last time in our series, we picked it up with the account of the worldwide flood during the days of Noah, and we introduced this in Genesis chapters 6 and 7 with God's call to Noah to build an ark and the beginning stages of the flood. We're going to pick it up in chapter 7 and finish this account through chapter 7, chapter 8, the results of the flood, and then going to chapter 9 as well with some of the things that took place immediately following the flood, flood during the days of Noah. Mark, glad to have you with me once again as we continue our journey through the Old Testament and the book of Genesis. Yeah, it's good to keep studying this book and, and to get the sort of the, the remnants here of the end of the flood account. Last time, we had talked a lot about the fact that this is clearly, from the biblical account and the words used in Genesis, a worldwide catastrophe or flood. And we talked about some of the things in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 that clearly indicate that this is a worldwide flood. The Bible tells us that there are two sources of the water. The waters are coming from above. The waters are coming from the deeps uh, be below the breakup of the what we might call tectonic plates and, and opening that, this up. There had to be a drastic shift in the change or the makeup of the globe or the earth as a result of this catastrophe. Let's start there. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things that might have taken place as a result of this worldwide flood? Yeah, I think we have to realize that the way the world looked before the flood was vastly different than the way that the world looks today to our eyes. I think we have a tendency to see all things through the time setting in which we live as if it's always been that way. I think that's sort of the idea that evolution takes on, that things have always existed the same, interacted the same, maybe different creatures along the timeline here and there, but the world's always generally looked the same. And what the Bible portrays is, is the event of the flood would have changed the entire surface of the world. It would have changed the, the entire global landscape. Because what you've got there, I, I, the, you know, the common idea with the flood is that it just rained. And all that, it just rained and rained and rained and rained and rained and eventually the water level rose. What the Genesis actually describes is that the water came from above and below. So it, it uses the phraseology of the great deeps were broken up. Um, so we can think about that as sort of the, the, the continental plates in a way, shifting, breaking up and water coming up out of that, as well as water coming from above. And what you're going to have with that is basically completely changing the landscape of the world, of the surface that we see. In addition to that, when you have large amounts of land or sediment moving and being displaced, that's going to change things drastically too. You've got living creatures involved, that's going to create massive beds of fossils. And that's exactly what we see in the world today. You have marine animals fossilized all over the world. Um, in in parts that are not that are thousands of miles from the nearest water source 
um, there has to be an explanation that fits how that could happen. And the flood fits that perfectly if you've got large amounts of sediment moving on top of one another. Now, I'm not a geologist, but there are many good creation scientists and good re resources there that explain exactly what the flood would have done to the surface of the earth in terms of geology. And it really does fit very well with what we see in the layers of a lot of areas. Take Grand Canyon, for example. You see layers moving from one type of sediment to the other directly without any erosion, without any water runoff. It's like almost like they were pancakes stopped, stacked on top of one another. The, that's exactly what Genesis is telling us is going to happen when the fountains of the deep are opened up and the water's coming from below and moving this sedimentary all over the place. What you're also going to have is changes between valleys and mountains. When continents are shifting, what that does is going to push land up to form mountains, and it's going to decrease land in other areas to form valleys. And so one of the other things we've got to recognize is that the mountains that we see today were formed by the flood. They didn't look that way pre-flood. And so when, when the biblical text tells us, as we looked at last time, that the waters covered the mountains, all the mountains, all the highest peaks, that's not saying that it was the exact mountain ranges that we have today. Through the moving of that sediment, the shifting of the land, those peaks that we have today would have been formed in that process. Um, and also, you have the same thing happening as the floodwaters recede. There's an interesting theory that I'd like to talk about just briefly, and it's the theory that's called Pangea. The fact that in the very beginning, when God created the world, we talked about this in Genesis chapter one, that God created all of the land in basically what would be one continent. And that as a result of the flood, then that one continent, that single continent was broken up, giving us the continents that we have today. And if you go back to Genesis chapter one, when God created the land, we're told, let the waters appear below the heavens and let them be uh, gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And when you take a look at uh, Genesis chapter seven, it talks about the floodgates or the fountains of the great deep being burst open, the floodgates of the sky opened up and causing this, we have the scientific phenomenon called continental drift, that the continents seem to be drifting apart from each other. Uh, do you want to just talk about that briefly, your thoughts on that? Well, I can't speak from any kind of authority on on whether that would have been, if it, you know, the breaking off of Pangaea would be the product of the flood, but it certainly would fit with the narrative. And it's something I've wondered often myself where, you know, you can kind of put, you take a globe today, you can kind of put the continents back in the, into their original spaces. You can see how they would have fit into one landmass. And even secular scientists believe that that was the case at some point. And again, it's very, very possible that that was one of the, the results or the effects of the flood is that it, it broke that original landmass apart. And that would have fit perfectly with the way that the Lord would have used those waters coming up from the deep to cover all the landmass. And then I think that it would have been even more accelerated in its drifting from the continents drifting as the waters receded as well. You'd have that happening as well. Um, so I think it certainly fits. It's to me. It's to me. It's a. It's definitely an interesting question. I don't know if if it can ever be proved, but um, 
it is interesting to think about that it because from science we seem to observe that the continents at one time fit together in one landmass and the flood would give an explanation as to how those that one mass broke apart i've always been amazed to it you you commented earlier about finding marine fossils for example in the middle of the north american continent or interestingly on the top of Mount Everest. So how did marine fossils get to the top of the mountain? Unless that mountain at one point was underneath the ocean and was pushed up and formed then out of the ocean at the time of the flood. So again, those are things that evolutionary scientists, they have no explanation for how it could be that so many of these marine fossils or you know ocean fossils could be found in places where you would not expect them to be. But the flood certainly explains that. Yeah, I think the I think the evolutionary explanation I've heard to that is that there were 17 different times where the water level rose and then receded, but they never go as far as the flood account where they sit where they, the evolutionary perspective never says that the waters covered the whole earth. But they would say that that's where you find marinos. But again, when you look at if it happened, if there was a flood of a local variety and then a recession 17 different times in earth history, we would see more evidence of that in in erosion and the running of waters off. And we just don't see that in the areas where the layers of sediment are exposed to us for our eyes to see. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the timing. The timing can be a little bit confusing in these couple of chapters also. There's a whole lot of things that are going on here. Uh, talk a little bit about the timing of the flood. How long did it rain or did these floodgates of the deep, how long were they open? And then how long did the flood last? And how long did Noah spend on the ark? How, wait, what's the timing of all of this? Yeah, it can be kind of confusing to track, but here's where we can be thankful that Moses recorded this for us as history because he puts down the exact dates on when these things happen. So in chapter seven, as far as the rain, we're told in verse 12 that the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So that gives us a pretty clear picture about the rain. And again, that's where it's important to remember that water was coming from below too, because if it was raining for 40 days and 40 nights, that would be pretty catastrophic, but it would not create a global flood. It would have to, it would have to rain much longer than that. But as far as Noah and his family being on the ark, well, in the, the, the verse right before that in chapter seven, verse 11, it tells us there in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And then it also says the rain started on that day. So that's when the, uh, the, we might say that the flood officially began. The waters had not covered the whole earth yet, but that's when the whole thing started off. And thankfully, again, we have Moses by inspiration of the spirit telling us very specifically the, the second month, the 17th day of that month. Again, that's not the type of language that would be used in a figurative poetic book. That's the type of language that is used when tracing history through a narrative. Now, how long were Noah and his family on the ark? Jump to chapter 8, um, and in verse 13, we're told, again, naming the month, that it came to pass um, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and the surface of the ground was dry. So from the moment that they entered the ark, to the moment that they left the ark was just about a year, a little less than a year. They, they entered on the second month and then the next year they left on the first month. 
So they were in the ark for just about a year. But then the final question is, well, how long were, were the waters on the earth? And the end of chapter seven tells us that on verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So we get by that the word prevail, what we understand by that is that the waters were over the surface of the earth. It were, the waters were covering the earth. And then you see it took about half that time for the waters to recede to the point where Noah and his family could exit the ark. So can be kind of confusing to track all that you know, as far as well, how long did it rain? How long were the waters covering the face of the earth? And then how long were the people on the ark? You just look at the Bible passages and take them one by one. We actually have a very accurate account of the timeline. The other thing that's interesting about that is in the beginning of chapter eight, after the water has stopped, you commented that the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So, I mean, that's a significant amount of time. Uh, if the water, if it rained for a little over a month, 40 days, and then it prevailed over the top of the earth and all of this is going on. So that's a, a significant thing. All of this is, is starting to, to form these mountain ranges and the continents and all of these things. And, and so Moses or Noah starts to see land as the water begins to subside and the water, the Lord sends this, uh, this breeze on it and, and it's going to start to recede, but he sends out animals. Then after he begins to see land, he sends out a raven, he sends out a dove, but the, the ground isn't ready yet. He knows that it's getting close. Finally, the Lord sends him out of the ark after the water has subsided. It's back to what we would call normal again, a different normal than what it was before the flood, but a, a new normal. Uh, do you want to talk about that just a little bit and how the Lord prepares Noah for, for getting off the ark? Well, yeah, I think that you got within, within the chronology that we listed already, we were trade, you know, Moses takes us through and traces how Noah came to understand and how long it took to understand that, that it was safe to exit the ark. We're told at the beginning of chapter eight and verse four, that he kind of started in the seventh month. Um, and then, that that's when the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And then three months later in the 10th month, um, he could see the mountains. And then after 40 days, he tried the first animal sending the raven out and the raven was flying over the water and couldn't find anywhere to land. Then he sent the dove out and the dove returned. And then seven days after that, the dove came back with the olive leaf in his mouth, in her mouth. And so, you know, it, it had to be, it was, a, it was a test of patience there for, for Noah and his family on the ark. Um, first of all, coming to rest. Second of all, finally seeing land. And then third, being able to finally know that, it, that, the, that the waters had receded to the point where the land was able to be walked on and, and, and life was able to be sustained. And so um, a lot more went into it than enter the ark, rains for a bit, float around, exit the ark, you know, that there was a timeline in place and it certainly fits from a, we might say a scientific perspective. The Bible gives us detail on how the waters receded as well, that it took time to do that just as we would naturally conclude. Um, and so again, you see indication here that the Lord not only, you know, led, led Noah and his family through this safely, but you also see that this is a recounting of a historical event. Okay, so the ark came to rest 
Where is it? The mountains of Ararat, very clearly in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. <laughs> uh, obviously, many of our listeners probably know there have been people that have tried from the, from the time that we've been able to access the mountains, people have tried to find Noah's Ark. And, you know, I think that we know that the, the mountains of Ararat were somewhere in the Middle East. And so we've got that, we've got that down. Um, but be, be very skeptical of any, anybody who's going to tell you that Noah's Ark has been found. Um, we don't know where the Ark is today. Chances are it's been lost to, to history. Um, it was a wooden vessel. It was large. Maybe it is preserved under, under some ice sheet or something, or maybe it's washed away and, and disintegrated. We don't know. Um, maybe Noah and his family deconstructed it uh, as they were, you know, preparing their lives again and used it for dwelling or for, for other resources. It's quite possible that they would have done that. So obviously it's a fascinating thought to think that we could find Noah's Ark. Obviously we can sense why Christians would want to do that. It would verify from a rational standpoint, the biblical account, but we don't need that. We don't want to rely on that either. As Jesus said, um, the wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. We don't want that to be the way we practice our faith. It would be nice, but we're not, we don't want to jump into conspiracy theories about whether or not the Ark has been found. There's certainly many out there. I think all you'd have to do is Google the topic, but nothing has been proven with beyond the shadow of a doubt that the, that the Ark has been found. Well, let's move on to what we do know. I've always been amazed, especially through the study of Genesis, at the response of Noah after he gets off of this moving vessel for a year. I mean, he's been on this thing for a long time out of, you I mean, it, it, he didn't have control over it. You know, it was, it was just floating on the, on the waters, but take us into the very end of the, of the book of, of Gen, uh, Genesis chapter eight, the very last couple of verses. What does Noah do when the Lord brings him out of the ark? He worships the Lord he offers a burnt offering. It says it at the end of chapter eight that Noah built an altar and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the, the soothing aroma. And uh, so it was an act of worship. The Noah recognized the Lord's mercy here. Uh, and I think, I think this kind of thought, we talked earlier pre-flood, that the passage that said Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and kind of what that means, that it wasn't an indication of Noah's works over and above somebody else, but it was a matter of his heart. It was a matter of his faith. And you see that displayed here in the, his actions following the flood, um, that Noah, uh, the, one of the first things he did was to thank and praise the Lord for, for bringing his family safely through this. I think there's a lot, there would have been a lot of opportunity there for Noah to complain about how rough the journey had been and all the trials that would have gone along with that. Um, it could not have been easy to live on that ark for a year. And there would have been a lot of opportunity to complain and, and to be kind of begrudging against God. But Noah was thankful and grat had gratitude in his heart to the Lord and worshiped him. Um, what a wonderful reminder of what our perspective should be when we are beset with trials and difficulties and the Lord leads us out of them. Absolutely. So not to put you on the spot here out there on, on the 
West Coast, but any thoughts on the Lord's promise in the final verse, well, final two verses of that chapter, in light of the, the discussions that we have and hear about all the time on global warming and climate change and all of these things, the Lord says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What, what can the Christian take away from this comment of the Lord to Noah in light of all of the fear that we have in our world today over global warming, et cetera? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think what you see here are at the end of the flood account, you see two major political topics in our day and age that are addressed by God. Um, Maybe one more indirectly than the other, but you mentioned the idea of climate change. What comes along with that today for people is a lot of alarmism about the end of the world. Um, Just in the last political year, when there's been such a divide between the two parties on on what direction and what course to take on the topic of environmentalism and climate change. There's been a lot of voices on one side that have argued if we don't take action right now, the world as we know it will cease to exist. Everything will be destroyed. And there's a theory in climate change that basically indicates that we reach a point of no return, that when when greenhouse gases rise to a certain level, it's going to be impossible for us to get back from that. It's just going to create this snowball effect that's eventually going to destroy all life on Earth. Um, I'm not a climatologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor. But I have a worldview just like everybody else. I have a set of glasses through which I see the world around me, and that is dictated by God's word and the Christian perspective. And when God gives me a promise here, like we see at the end of chapter eight, where the Lord says, as long as the earth endures, the seasons will endure. The opportunities for seed time and harvest, for growth, for food, for planting, for harvesting, that will always continue as long as the earth endures. Well, that's the Lord telling us we don't have to worry about the end of the world happening at our own hands. Now, that's not to say we can't muck up the world and destroy it quite a bit as humans. We certainly can. We we could certainly make the world a lot worse than it currently is now, and we should be environmental in that sense. But raising alarm that the world's going to end in 10 to 15 years or whatever the whatever the timeline may be is is a conspiracy theory opposed to God's word. And it's, and it's giving into fear rather than being led by faith. So I think you have to walk a proper balance when it comes to climate change and environmentalism of we are expected to be stewards of the earth. That was, that's what goes along with the command to subdue and have dominion over the creation that God gave in Genesis chapter one. He expects that out of us. We need to be responsible with the world around us. And there's a lot of good ways to do that from the environmental perspective. But it's a completely different argument to say, the world is going to end because of that, or that man is going to to bring about an apocalypse of an environmental nature because of our use of the world. Um, a lot of the a lot of the foundations of the modern climate change movement come from secular people who do not believe in the biblical account, who do not believe that any use of the creation by mankind is proper or good. That is a thoroughly unbiblical and anti-Christian position. We would not want to join up with a movement like that. And so 
we as Christians, we need to take our stand on what the position is. And our position is the Lord, the Lord not only created the world, but preserves the world. The Lord watches over that. Along with that comes our responsibility as mankind to take care of the world. But the Lord is over all. And the Lord says he determines the day on which this world ends. And it's not it's not going to change. It's not going to end by climate change. It's going to end by his divine judgment. Yeah, I appreciate that thought very much. I think there's a lot that we can learn from these opening chapters of Genesis that certainly still apply to us today and give us confidence and assurance that God is in control. Uh, we don't we don't need to fear the things of this world. Yes, we are caretakers of it, but uh, to trust in God ultimately. In chapter nine, Mark, the Lord establishes a covenant with Noah and his family. The, the, the Lord has been worshipped by Noah after delivering him through the, through the flood and, and with the construction of the ark. God sends them out and says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then he establishes his covenant with Noah and through Noah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that covenant and what that sign, the sign of the covenant was here in chapter 9? Yeah, so the, the covenant is that the Lord will not destroy the world by a flood again, the promise of the Lord. And, and for those that may not understand the, the word covenant, it simply means a, a very binding and deep promise of the Lord. And so his covenant here is not necessarily about salvation. That's the covenant we typically talk about in the Bible, but it's a covenant of his grace still that he will not destroy the world by the flood. Um, and the sign that the Lord gave is the rainbow. And so God's telling us that when we see that sign, um, which often happens after it rains, that it's the Lord's reminder to us that he will keep and preserve us and will not destroy the world again as he did in, at, at the time of Noah's flood. Now, that does not negate the, the, the reality of Judgment Day again, that the Lord said that the, this world is going to end at some point. On, on a day that the Lord has determined this world has an expiration date. Uh, but it will not come at the, as a result of floodwaters. And so this is where I mentioned we see another indirect political theme here in our culture where the rainbow has become a symbol for the gay rights movement. And, you know, it's not as if we're, we're not covering that topic here in Genesis, but I think we have to touch on it. Because when we see that symbol today, for many people, it means something vastly different than what God intended it to mean. The rainbow is not to be a symbol for sexual freedom and doing and living our lives however we please in defiance of God's laws about marriage and adultery and sexuality. Uh, the rainbow is a sign that God instituted as a sign of his mercy and grace toward fallen mankind that he would bear with them in long suffering, even though we deserve judgment, that the Lord would not again curse the world as he did at the time of the flood. And so it's, it's very unfortunate that because of political movements and sometimes now even religious movements, this symbol that is meant to remind us of the Lord's work for us, of the Lord's power and mercy for us, is turned into a symbol of man's pride and defiance against God. And we, I, don't want, I don't want listeners to think of us as Christians just harping on this one point, but you have to address that when, this, when you look at this chapter in Genesis. It's something that is part of our culture. And, and really, as Christians, we need to take a stand and take back the meaning of the rainbow 
that doesn't necessarily mean our culture will change on the topic, but we need to put our foot in the sand and take a stand on it and say, this is what this sign is, was intended by God to mean. And it is very ironic that within the rainbow itself today, you see an example of man's pride. You know, we, we, we said at the beginning of the flood, the Lord said the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. At the end of the flood, he said the same thing. It's almost as if God is telling us, wake up and see what I'm trying to teach you through this account. That if you let your sinful human heart go wherever it wants to go, it will do wicked and perverse things. And unfortunately, that's what our culture has done with the symbol of the rainbow. It doesn't mean that people who are struggling with sexual sins are horrible people that deserve to be cast down or are any worse than any other sinner. But the danger of it is that our culture takes it and celebrates it and makes it into a matter of human pride and boasts about it and looks at it as a human right. And all of that is in defiance to, to the way that God would have us live our lives. And so as Christians, our, our task there is not to overlook that because it's a difficult topic to talk about, or maybe it's not the original thought of Genesis chapter nine, but we need to address it in Christian love and based on God's truth. I, it's, it's interesting to me, Mark, that this account of the rainbow, which is, as you pointed out, a symbol of God's covenant and love for humanity, his desire to save them, is sandwiched in between two accounts of God's judgment of mankind because of their sin. One is the flood, which we covered this week and last time. And the next one we're going to cover in our next episode, which is the Tower of Babel and God's judgment over mankind. Because again, they they exalted themselves in their sin instead of humbling themselves and repenting and turning to God in, in humility and repentance. As you pointed out, they rebelled against God. And so any sin... Any sin is forgivable. Christ has, has paid the debt of every sin. The question is, as hum, human beings, what are we going to do with our sin? Are we going to, are we going to magnify and, and exalt in our sins? Or are we going to turn those sins over to Christ in, in forgiveness and, and trusting in the work that he has done for us? There's the difference in the two. And that rainbow is a reminder of God's desire to save all human beings but through sincere repentance and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing those, those two things up in, in this, not something that we would often see in this account of Genesis. Very, very important in how it touches on our society today though. And, and I think just as a parting thought on that point, just as a, just as a, an observer of the Bible and a Christian, there's so much more comfort in the symbol, the rainbow, when we connect it to God than when we connect it to ourselves. That, yeah. that point alone, that point alone should give anyone who is, who is championing this, this political movement of human freedom and pride um, should give them pause about, about the true intentions of that movement. Absolutely. Well, Genesis chapter nine closes with a, a very unique and probably less familiar account. And that is the account of, of the drunkenness of Noah and the response of his three sons. You want to touch on that account just briefly as we close? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting account, but it, it kind of tells us what one of the events that led to how, how the nations were formed 
and went their different ways following the flood. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And we're told that after the flood, Noah became the cultivator of a vineyard. And one day he drank too much wine and got drunk and was naked in his tent. And one of his sons, Ham, looked upon the nakedness of his father and the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, uh, took a covering and backed up and covered Noah in respect without looking upon his nakedness. And we're told that because of that event, Ham, which would be the father of the nation of Canaan, um, his descendants would be in subjection to Shem and Japheth's. And Shem's descendants would eventually become the Jewish people. And we know that in the rest of the biblical history, there was great conflict at the time of the Exodus, um, post that, post Exodus, the time of the kings and judges, the time of the prophets, even up to the time of Christ, there was always cultural conflict between the Jews and the Canaanites. And this story kind of tells us the origins of that, if you will, of, of the events that led into that. Um, now, there are certain stories where we think that God is a bit harsh in his punishment, and perhaps this is one of them where, well, what did Ham really do? Well, there was an element of disrespect for Noah uh, upon gazing upon the nakedness of his father. Obviously, Noah was not without fault either, becoming drunk, um, but the Lord, to those whom he puts in, in positions of authority and responsibility, he expects a lot out of them, and and this was an effect of Ham's choice there. And it's important too, as you pointed out, that that doesn't mean, this account doesn't mean that God didn't desire the Canaanites to come to know him and to come to repentance. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see examples of that with Melchizedek, who we'll touch on later on in the book of Genesis and others that the Lord sends to lead these people to himself but it's simply pointing out there is, by and large, they are going to reject him. This is going to be the result of, of their rejection, their rebellion. So I think that is an important thing to remember is that, again, touching on what we, we discussed earlier, that the Lord desires the salvation of all. That is a clear doctrinal understanding truth that we find throughout the scriptures. Uh, but there are many that rebel against God, seek their own ways, uh, do what they want to do, and as a result, deserve as we all do god's judgment but also forsake the redemption that christ has won through faith for every one of our sins any closing thoughts on these these chapters seven eight and nine in genesis mark before we close just again one of the same same thoughts we've seen in the other portions of genesis that we've discussed is um this section is probably unfamiliar as compared to some of the other chapters in Genesis, but very important. I think we've seen again, some of the modern themes for our faith, for our understanding of the Bible, um, the way that we practice our faith that we've seen are, are either come from or are shaped by these portions of Genesis. So I'd encourage our readers again, uh, certainly not to overlook them in your Bible, but go back and study them, see what God is teaching through them, see what we can learn from them today. Uh, as we've mentioned, Genesis 1 through 11 uh, sets the foundation for the rest of, of what we believe and practice in the Bible.
And we will finish off that section in our next podcast. Next time, we will take a look at Genesis chapter 10, which is a long genealogy that is, again, an important chapter, as well as chapter 11, which lays out the Tower of Babel account. And we'll take a look at what God does there and why. And we'll learn a little bit about the background of and the foundation for Abraham, which is the next section in our study of Genesis. Thanks for joining us today. Mark, thank you for taking us through these last few chapters in Genesis dealing with Noah. We look forward to our ongoing study of God's word through the book of Genesis. Hope you'll you'll join us next time. We hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of Burden and Blessing podcast as we continue to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Until next time, take confidence in your Savior's promise that he will always be with you even to the end of the world.